We don't slut shame around here. They say we are what we eat. Does that come in organic? So who are you eating? I believe they call that an ethical slut. Can I unplug your phone so I can charge my vibrator? I can't believe he couldn't find it. Fuck it. Let's roll. You're listening to Eat, Play, Sex with Dr. Cat, The place to up-level that sexy life of yours. With expert talk on sex, love, and nutrition. Hey lovers, and welcome to another episode of Eat, Play, Sex. I'm your sex expert, Dr. Cat. And okay, so I am under the belief that flirting is a gift unto this world. (laughs) I truly do. I really do. And when we start, we are, when we flirt, when we flirt, uh, we are highlighting the beauty and the best attributes of a person to reflect and amplify their value and therefore creating a reference point for them to see themselves with greater worth. Now, the problem here is that flirting takes confidence in our own selves to deliver or else we find ourselves hesitating or avoiding it. And maybe it falls flat. Maybe it's perceived as creepy or maybe we get called desperate or a total fuck boy or girl. And I would say I would personally say at this point in my life that I'm a good flirt, but I swear that I wasn't born that way. (laughs) And I get that some babies come out and coo at all the girls real smooth. And that just was never me. I was more of the awkward turtle type whose mind would draw blank when a boy would say that I was hot or how sexy I was. And somehow I would get the words, thank you. But I don't think thank you is really that sexy. (laughs) I swear this is a true story, but not exactly sure how that changed for me. And probably the 10 years of self-development work that I did to gain more confidence and love for myself. And, and it's a journey, right? It's, it's something that we develop over time because we gain these new reference points of, of, you know, our own sense of intrinsic worth. And, and in the meantime, (laughs) as we are developing that for ourselves, I still believe that there are tips and tricks that can help us to deliver more effectively flirting in a way that it can be better received, you know, a way that to better slay the game. (laughs) And that's why we have Dr. Allison Ash here to help us out. From the inner initial interaction of flirting to the deepening of intimacy and recognizing our needs so that we can ask for them. This is going to be a super juicy episode. And before we get to Dr. Allison Ash, I want to thank you all for tuning in. I want to thank you for your reviews on iTunes. And if you haven't left one yet, then please be a doll and go type one up for me. <laughs> and then share with your best friend who needs a little inspiration for her dating profile. Because we're only doing this because we love you. <laughs> and because my goal here is to help you to eat, play, and sex so much better. And if you haven't already, please head to eatplaysex.com where you can subscribe to the show, connect with me, and read more about how you can up-level your sex love and vitality. Now, to our amazing guest that I'm excited to have on the show, Dr. Allison Ash. Thank you for joining me. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> yes, me too. This is this is going to be juicy, especially because now we're in the holiday season and I feel, well, I guess we're in COVID season, but even in COVID season, how important it is to have tips to flirt because, you know, some of us are feeling awkward on the text message on the 
apps and, and not knowing how to move forward with some of this. Is that flirting? I don't know. It might, it might be weird. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it takes something inherently a little awkward and makes it 10 times more uncomfortable and unfamiliar and awkward. Doesn't it? I know. I like, I don't know if the silence is because this is something wrong or inflections get misunderstood or I'm like, oh, I think I'm being cute and sexy and just nobody ever responds back. (laughs) Or the other person is going through their own crazy shit storm because it's COVID and then you take it so personally that they're not responding quickly because they have their own things going on. But you, of course, have no idea because you're just like wrapped up in your own world of like, the intensity of trying to navigate connection in a time when we're not supposed to connect. Yeah. And you would know because you are an expert in all of this. (laughs) So Dr. Allison Ash is a trauma-informed sex and intimacy coach. She's an educator. She's a lecturer at Stanford University. She's also an author and the founder of TurnOn.Love, which is how I actually came across your your work. I don't even remember how initially it started, but it came across your like, um, licking pussies for champs or something like that. I don't know. (laughs) How to eat pussy like a champ. That's it. That's it. I came across (laughs) it. and I was like, oh, this woman speaks my language. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So before we jump into this interview, I want to ask you a question to help you get warmed up and almost like a, like a podcast foreplay before we get any more intimate. (laughs) Bring it on. (laughs) All right. So question I ask all of my guests, what would you tell your younger self that you would help that would have helped them around sex or love? Hmm. You know, I think I went through that phase of not wanting to be that girl air quotes, that girl, you know, um, the girl that had emotional needs. I Mm -hmm. wanted to be able to be cool. And I always had a high sex drive and I just kind of wanted to be one of the boys and like not have to be needy. Mm hmm. And, um, and have big emotions that maybe needed to be held or attended to. And I think I just wish that I could tell younger Allie that big feelings are just so natural and okay and not something mm-hmm. to be ashamed of or, <clears throat> or have to hide away. And that um, actually big feelings can be incredibly sexy and erotic and um, really useful for flirting. Because when we dampen some of our emotional experience, we just unintentionally dampen our access to so much more, including our desires and our, often our confidence. Oh my God. That that's yes. I feel like baby cat and baby Allie would be like best friends. Like I'm pretty sure we would stand in a corner together and be like, we don't have any needs. We're self-sufficient. We're sovereign beings. And then all the, all the boys and girls around us would be like, fine, then go be by yourself. And And then we would confess how big our feelings are and we'd cry and hold each other. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) Right, right. In our journals. Today, I felt this. (laughs) Today, I discovered I had needs. (laughs) I just want to be held. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Just how normal that is. Oh, we just think that's so needy. It is such a bad rap. And, you know, we're just humans all have needs. We can't get around that. Right. And I, I feel like there's something in the humanness of that that helps other t- people to be able to connect with that That's versus, right. you know, I've given, been received the reflection from in past relationships. They were like, well, I just felt like I couldn't 
like you didn't need anything from me. You know, I couldn't teach you anything. And, and it was almost like, they, well, they did. They put me on a pedestal of being this, you know, all knowing Dr. Cat, you know, super cool. But, but they didn't feel like they could connect or be human with that. So that was a big revelation for me of, of um, you know, doing this dance of relationships. Yes. I have to say dating and doing this work is a totally different ball game. And that experience of being pedestal pedestal is really, it's uncomfortable. It doesn't actually mm-hmm. leave space for the messy humanness that we all experience. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it makes it hard to, to be vulnerable when somebody isn't expecting that from you. Right. Um, yes. And it's also hard to be vulnerable when, uh, you know, when, um, yeah, when we feel like we have a reputation or a professional edge to maintain. And I think that vulnerability is what creates intimacy, right? And the mm. vulnerability comes when we have needs, but vulnerability also comes if we can acknowledge, hey, sometimes I might put you on a pedestal. Or if we can say like, hey, you know, sometimes I feel like there's not enough space for me to just be messy and imperfect. Mm. And like that's such a great entryway into like deconstructing that dynamic and getting to something a little juicier. Yeah, yeah. It, it sort of like cracks us wide open instead of being contracted in a space of like, I have to contain all of these things and I can't let it be seen. Yeah, or that like one part of us has to be all of us. And I just think that we have so, we're so multifaceted. I have so many parts of, of me and um, and I want them all to be welcomed in my intimate relationships. That's That's beautiful and not in a schizophrenic type of way, but you have like... <laughs> <laughs> Girl, I feel you. I'm, I'm complex. Like sometimes Lola comes out, sometimes Coco comes out. I don't even know. <laughs> you know, I have taken to naming some of my different parts before, like my really aggressive defender part, and you know, my inner critic, and maybe my inner cheerleader. And like, you know, I just think that it's nice to be able to relate to these different parts of ourselves because then we don't have to fully de- identify with any one of them. And it makes it gives me some spaciousness around it. And it allows me to have. Mm more access to this part of me that's to be a conscious observer. And it's like, oh, there I am thinking that thought again or doing that habit or pattern or, um, and it just, it it helps me not feel so um, carried away by those natural human experiences. Mm, Yeah. And you know, today's topic, we're talking about flirting and I'm wondering if that can even be a powerful tool to be able to help around flirting because I think the pitfall of flirting is that I mean, it's an art and some of us can get really hesitant around it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I, I almost see how identifying these different parts can be really helpful in moving through the hesitancy or the you know uncertainty around it. That's exactly right. And I think that when I see kind of epic flirting fails, they come of two main varieties. And mm-hmm. one is exactly what you just named, which is like the hesitant, scared, um, I'm bracing for rejection or I'm already assuming it, or mm-hmm. um, I think that there's something wrong with my desires. It's inappropriate, all of that. But then there's the other uh, category of like, I'm just so hungry and there's such a lack and a yearning and a longing. And I'm so consumed by my desires that it can feel really overwhelming and, mm-hmm. um, and kind of invading to the other person. And I think that for folks who maybe experience one or the other, sometimes both, getting to like see, oh, that's the part of me that's feeling really hungry and unmet, or that's the part of me that's feeling um, a lack of confidence and insecure. And then saying, okay, can I, can I love that part up? 
And can Mm -hmm. I connect to something that's a little bit more core and deeper, my body, my desire, my genitals, like whatever it is that can be like a really embodied, um, a tactile way of like noticing that there's something else here too. Wow. Yeah. I think, and, and so that is very much speaking from a trauma lens too. What I'm hearing you say is like, she's a, you know, and in other past podcasts, we talk a lot about the, the, the um, activation of our nervous system and the body. And so getting it regulated first, getting embodied first helps us to be able to then move forward from a place of conscious connection and versus being you know, defaulting to some of these past patterns yeah. or showing up in a situation where we're like buzzing or we're like, which totally. might be intense. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so if you are the kind of person where you notice it's hard for you to feel confident, what I recommend that you do is you breathe into your genitals, like really do some pelvic floor um, tightening and releasing and pumping of your muscles and feel your desire. Think of something really erotic that turns you on and like connect to that erotic impulse before you flirt um, and, and feel it and see if you can even come to a place of enjoying that feeling of desire or pleasure or turn on. Mm-hmm. And then if you're somebody that where sometimes you get really consumed and really hungry and maybe is perceived as overwhelming, then I would recommend that you connect with the back of your body, focus on your spinal cord, focus on um, seeing if you can notice the back of your head um, or feel your feet on the ground. Um, and kind of pull your energy towards the back of your body. Um, and why is that? Why do you de- designate between those two? Yeah, I think that when we're not feeling confident, then we um, are often feeling really anxious and we're stuck in our head and we're having all these anxious thoughts. And so pulling into your desire lives in the body. And so pulling into mm-hmm. an embodied sense of desire and oftentimes doing those pelvic floor exercises helps you feel a little bit of desire or energy or warmth or tingling feeling that can help you connect to desire. I think that that can be a really big source of confidence because it gets you into an exactly more embodied place, right? Um, and then I think that connecting to the back of the body, when you're feeling that, um, intensity of desire and overwhelm is really helpful because I think what's happening is you're losing sight of yourself and being consumed by your lust and desire for somebody else. Mm. And that's what feels confronting for the other person, because it's like, well, where are you in this? Like, it's all about me and that's, it's too much energy on me. Mm-hmm. And so by noticing And also often in a body language aspect, there's a leaning in that starts to happen and like on the tips of your toes and you start to like notice that you're not really conscious of body, uh, uh, personal space in the same way. Uh And so by putting your attention on the back of your body, again, you're getting embodied, but you're noticing your own spatial awareness Mm -hmm. internally, which helps you notice your spatial awareness externally. Mm. And it draws some of your attention and focus to yourself, which then helps it less, feel less overwhelming for the other person. That is so eloquently stated because I, when I'm talking with people, I'm newly back into the dating world. So I'm getting to like field experiment all these things. And I've been describing to friends, I'm, I'm like, yeah, this person had a very pooling energy and the texture of the energy was very pooling. Or, or I'll say like, there was this energy that was almost like it was being put onto me. And I haven't really been able to, you know, 
describe it as adequately as you just did here, but it grounds what you're saying. It grounds what I've been experiencing energetically so well, because it is like this texture of like suffocation or, or being pulled in towards somebody as almost like to fill them in a sense. Mm -hmm. And so what you're saying here is really, really powerful when you, when so for people who are flirting and they're kind of hitting up against this, it's not quite working. How can they, are there signs and signals that they can pick up from other people to help them? Cause it's not like, like for me, I'm very blunt and I ask people how I'm like, give me feedback, you know, and like not everybody's ready can do that. <laughs> so how can they be their own experimenters or their own field scientists for themselves? I love that question. Well, I think the first thing, and I know that this is a little bit more challenging to do during COVID times, but not impossible, is to become a people watcher. Because I think that there's very clear body language cues that people give. And Mm -hmm. my favorite thing is to go to parks or public places and observe people, especially Mm -hmm. duos, and try and imagine what their relationship dynamic is. How are they feeling towards each other? What's their emotional state right now? And what body cues, what language are they doing non-verbally that's giving me that information? Mm. And so I think that considering, you know, are they leaning in versus leaning away? Are they making eye contact with you? Are they smiling? Are they reciprocating touch? Are they, um, is the content of the conversation getting a little bit juicier? Like there are certain Mm. things that we can track. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think what's hard for us is that when we get nervous, we tend to speed up. So think about public mm-hmm. speaking. If you get really nervous about public speaking, you're going to talk really, really fast, blah, 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 and you're going to try and get to the end as quickly mm-hmm. as possible. Mm-hmm. The same thing is true with flirting. If you're nervous, you're just going to try and like go for it really quickly. Um, and so that doesn't really leave space to notice body language um, or oh, wow, even to yeah. notice how the little things that you're doing are being received because the yeah. other person doesn't have a chance to digest it. Yeah. Um, so I think slowing down is so important. And then mm-hmm. looking for these little body language cues and getting more comfortable by watching other people will yeah. help you in the moment notice other um, in your own dynamics. Yeah. So this is just like foreplay, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, like I think social foreplay. <laughs> totally. I think one of the most important things that people don't understand about flirting and foreplay, seduction, the whole nine yards, is that it's not linear. Or when it's mm-hmm. sometimes it's linear, but that's like wham, bam, yum, thank you. Boom. And and that's mm-hmm. has its time and place. But I think most experiences are like a wave or like, you know, you go escalate a little bit and then this moment of de-escalation and then you escalate and then a moment of de-escalation. And what that does is actually in a flirting context, it demonstrates that you welcome no's, that you're okay Mm -hmm. slowing down, that um, you're creating space for them to move forward towards you. Mm -hmm. Um, you're, um, letting things have breathing room to develop and unfold a little bit more organically. And you're leaving room for them to have longing and yearning. And in a sexual dynamic, I think that like in foreplay, I want to have those moments of just slowing down eye contact, breathing together, like a softer touch, like it, from a nervous system perspective, right. It helps me ground in the moment and it actually increases my capacity to desire to flirt or for more foreplay. 
Mm, yeah, yeah, that's that's really powerful because there's a level of mystery there as well as desire. You know, you're you're um, holding yourself. You're not making the other person hold you, but you're moving towards. But there's still an element that they get to discover, which is interesting. Yeah, right? and we're interested safe. in things. That we, yeah, yeah, it's mysterious and it's safe because I know that it's okay to slow down. And in flirting, if I give you like a, like a, if we're flirting and you do something and I don't really reciprocate it, uh, maybe you give me a, a kind of more intimate touch and I get a little nervous and I shy away from you, but I'm still here and I'm still connected and I'm not like, bye, I see you later, count over it. Like that, there's a, there is a no there, but it's not a full rejection. It's actually a bid for intimacy. It's me saying, subtly, can I be a no to this one thing? And will you still stay in connection with me? Is it okay? Wow. Yeah, that's, that's big because how challenging that can be sometimes, you know, when we do these things and as you were saying, observing people's responses towards us, how do we not interpret that as rejection? How do we, you know, if somebody's hand moves away or maybe they're quiet and how easy that can be in our head and we're like, well, they don't want us abort, abort, you know, run away. (laughs) Yeah. I think that that's what's so challenging for folks who are new to flirting is that they're tracking the other person so intently and they're making like, uh, they're drawing a lot of information from maybe one piece of data. Mm. And sometimes like the most common example I can give is you're trying to catch somebody's eye from across the room and you haven't like flirted with them at all. They're a stranger. It's a cold call mm-hmm. flirt. And, <laughs> and you catch their eyes and they get nervous and they look away. I swear 99% of the time, even if they think you're completely gorgeous, the instinctual yeah. reaction when you catch somebody's eye across the room is they're going to get shy and look away. Yes, And that doesn't necessarily mean they're not into you. And so I always want to advise people, don't stare intently like gawking at them, but like have kind of a little bit of awareness to see if they come back and look back and come for the, the, the look back is what I call it. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> because so it's often there and then you can catch them again and smile and make that eye contact and then maybe do an approach but so many people oh they looked away okay it's just over and they just yeah. completely take it off the off the list of possibilities you know that's so funny that you bring that up because I think there was those two years ago I started holding eye gaze with people that I would pass by either on the boardwalk in Venice or I would, you know, catch on the other side of the room and they would look away or sometimes actually I would, I would play this game of how long can I hold their eye gaze (laughs) because I get used to get nervous around it. And so I turned it into um, an edge growth, right? Leaning into this and seeing if I can hold it for a really long time. And I would feel the flutter in my body be like, oh, look away, look away. <laughs> but holding it. And I don't think I've ever once had anybody approach me from that experience though. I, I've had to approach them, but never in the reverse. And I don't think it's anything about me. I think I'm great. <laughs> I think you're great too. <laughs> I think it also just kind of shows that you're a little bit of an in- initiator. Right. Oh. Like, <laughs> right? And and I really relate with that, right? I often am the one that's kind of making eyes and smiling and either approaching or maybe like giving like a little come here signal, which is also still kind of leading the flirt. Um oh my God, Allie, think, are you flirting with me? Oh my God. A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Fully received. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
<laughs> so, so how would you, so for those people who aren't initiators like us, how, what might be some ways that they could initiate that might be more comfortable or in their zone yeah. for them if they don't intentionally hold eye gaze from across the room? <laughs> I think that something that you can do that's really helpful is um, consider that there's both verbal and nonverbal flirting. Mm. And maybe you're more uncomfortable with one, but you feel like you have more access to the other. And, um, and so thinking about what are, what are your strengths? Because flirting is a collaborative, co-created mm -hmm. process. So it's okay if you want to let somebody come and initiate with you, but you've got to give them something back, mm -hmm. right? And so thinking about how you can um, celebrate their flirting attempts and their desire. That could be with a, Ooh. you know, full smile back. It could be with reciprocating their touch. It could be leaning in slightly more. It could be um, offering a, a sweet compliment or an affirmation. Like, I really appreciate the courage it comes over to talk to me. I, like, I, mm. I don't think I could do something like that. Like, just saying something like that is already going to have the other person feel safer, more confident. Oh, I did the right thing. And then, and then you're actually, by making it easier for them, you're making it easier for you. So I don't, you don't have to mm. always be in the driver's seat. You could just be a really good passenger. I like that. So you're supporting, you're creating like a foundation, a safe and encouraging foundation. It's almost like you are feeding them carrots and be like, Oh, you're so good. You're so right. good. <laughs> exactly. Right. And that doesn't mean that you have to be a yes to everything. You can be uh -huh. a no and still celebrate their desires. Yes. Right. I think so, that's what makes a good flirt. Exactly. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right. So if you and I are like kissing and you put your hand up my shirt and I'm a yeah. no to that. And I kind of put your hand down and I say, but I, I pull you in closer and keep, and keep kissing you as I'm pushing your hand away, right? That's a non-verbal way of like celebrating your desire and saying it's still okay. Yeah. Or maybe I do it in a verbal way where I say, oh, I'm not ready for that, but I so love your hunger for me. Ooh, yes. That's such a compassionate and non-shaming way to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And that would actually make me think, because I think one of the biggest fears that we have is coming across as creepy. Mm -hmm. You know, and like initiating and doing some of these things and then some being met with somebody who thinks that we're creepy. How do we, so, so asking for a friend, how do we <laughs> flirt without coming across as creepy? Well, I think it's important to remember that flirting and seduction, I think, is um, safety plus turn on. Because mm. if you have a ton of turn on and not enough safety, even though somebody might really be into you, they're going to put the walls up because it doesn't feel safe to pursue it. Mm -hmm. And if there's a lot of safety, but you're not bringing that turn on, you're going to get friend zoned, right? Ah, so friend, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I think that the key to flirting without being creepy uh -huh. is to create safety while yeah. still acknowledging your desire and turn on. Mm -hmm. And so I think the best way to create safety is to um, be embodied, as we talked about yeah. earlier, and then also to drop your agenda. And, and the more that, and this is hard, we're in a capitalistic, agenda-driven, goal-oriented society. And obviously, mm -hmm. if you're flirting, you probably have a goal. I want to get their number. I want to have a date with them. I want to hook up. And that's okay to like have these goals. But if you're treating this experience as though you have this agenda and you're moving towards that agenda, mm -hmm. you're, not, you're probably not doing it, uh, being able to be very aware of pacing and being mm -hmm. really attuned. Yeah. 
it's going to create a lot of pressure. Um, and you're not going to really welcome the other person's nose because it's not in alignment with your agenda. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's really what just makes it hard for the other person to feel safe with you. Mm-hmm. And so noticing that, okay, I have this goal. I have a broader agenda here to find connection and intimacy. Can I it, interact with this p- person though, uh, with a sense of curiosity mm-hmm. about how it's going to unfold and be open to the unfolding process? And I think yes. that really helps reduce the creepy vibes. I think that's really important. I'm going to send this to my girlfriends who come to me and share with me their experiences of going on a Tinder date with somebody and the guy being very quick in pacing and very, you know, like, and even myself uh, being in touch when I'm not ready to be touched or, you know, pulled in and I'm not ready for that. Or they try to kiss me and I'm definitely not ready for that, you know, in the first date or whatever. And, and it, it is like, they're not even present to what is trans transpiring in front of them. But like you said, I love that they've got an agenda. There's an agenda, which as humans, we can have those, but the, there's a, um, an avoidance or an, a rejection of what is present and it's not meshing. <laughs> it's not rushing. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, that when we're talking about creepy, that's what we are referring to, you know, this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that that's one of the biggest ways that we can experience creepiness Yeah, okay. is that we, f- we feel like an object that's being pursued and that we're not being seen. Our nose aren't being seen and understood even the nonverbal nose. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and, um, and then I think that there's another kind of like um, thing of creepy, which, you know, I think that it's important just to note that creepy is subjective. What one person receives mm. as creepy, another person might not receive as creepy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've noticed that um, shame and awkwardness and, um, and insecurity can be a little contagious. Meaning that if somebody's feeling really awkward and is feeling a lot of shame, then the other person is going to feel kind of uncomfortable too. They pick up on it. Yes. And they don't really know what it is and they don't really know why they're feeling that thing. And so sometimes there's just this judgment that gets put on it as though they're creepy, even Mm -hmm. though there's actually nothing that like maybe we would define as creepy. There's no creepy behavior. It's just like genuine insecurity, maybe feeling ashamed about their desire, their lack of experience or something like that. But that because that can feel uncomfortable for the other person, then they might slap this label and judgment of creepy on them. Mm. So that's kind of the other way I see creepy showing up with my clients and some of the experiences that they're reporting. Yeah. And so for anybody who's listening to this and, and this resonates, come back to the parts practice where, where you're pulling this out and you're just recognizing this is just a part of me that's nervous or this is a part of me that is holding an agenda and excited about making something magic happen tonight or (laughs) versus this inherent worth or identification of you as being a creep. Yes. And I think that it's really important to get support. Like if you experience a lot of sexual shame, if you're, um, if it's hard for you to feel sexually confident, then you don't have to navigate that by yourself. I mean, shame is an experience of a fear of rejection. And so the antidote to shame is acceptance and belonging. And so when you can talk about the things that you're feeling ashamed about with somebody that's going to not reject you and give you that missing experience of acceptance and belonging and help you move through the shame to a place where you can feel 
confident. Like we, that's not something that we can necessarily do by ourselves. That's that mm-hmm. kind of healing has to happen. I think in relationship with other people. Yeah. Big time. Cause you create these new reference points of yourself Yeah, and of who you can be seen as and replacing those old patterns of baby cat and <laughs> baby Dr. Ash. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we all have it, right? That's also do. just the normalization of like, you're not weird because you have shame and you're not weird because you're lacking confidence in this area. It's actually quite normal. Yes. Yes. And there's power to own that when we own that. Yeah. I definitely an awkward internal at times. <laughs> yeah. So one experience that I have for myself is um, that uh, sometimes people mistake being friendly because I'm very, I'm a very flirtatious type of person and it's just the way that I play. And I think, you know, again, it lights everyone up. It's like, ah, you know, I get to see, or I, I almost like see and pull out and feel myself the epicness of that person. And so, and that can sometimes be misperceived as desire for something more. How would you suggest somebody navigate that? or to be able to hold their boundaries or, you know, um, compassionately express that it's just fun. Yeah. I think that there's, um, you know, I resonate cause I'm also a pretty flirty, touchy feely, especially pre COVID touchy feely kind of person. And, um, I think one thing that I have found helpful is to just name that in newer, newish connections. I'll say something to the fact of, um, I know that I can uh, be a little flirty and really touchy feely. And I also really valuing building a friendship with you and I don't want to give any mixed signals. And I just, um, want to know if, if it's well received and if you have any requests for me to modify how I am with you. Um, or, you know, whatever your way of kind of just acknowledging, I know that I can be really flirty. I, I really love you as a friend. I don't want to send mixed signals. Um, is it, is it being well received or do you find it confusing? Right? And that's like pretty blunt. It is but blunt. I think that there's a way in which, um, I think the other tactic that people try is, oh, I just really love being friends with you. <laughs> and they just like really mm-hmm. go in and affirming the friendship. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's helpful and that works, but I think there's something really vulnerable about owning, hey, I'm a flirty person and I really, I really like being touchy feely with my friends. And, mm-hmm. and you can even go a level deeper. And this has gotten me in trouble in the past in some of my dynamics. And I really value this with dynamic with you and I don't want to create something sticky here. I love that. Yes. I'm also a very direct communicator nowadays. <laughs> and I find that when we, when you are that way and you still say it with love and compassion and no judgment, it's received well. I don't know that, at least more recently, I haven't had anybody not take that well. Yeah. And I think so, it's so refreshing. Yeah. And, and it gives everybody, it lets everybody know the edges so that everybody can relax in the container and they don't have to be on guard as to, well, where's the edge? Have I hit it yet? (laughs) That can cause us to not be in our body. It's so true. I remember, Kat, I had the most profound conversation a couple years with a guy friend. I, I know that what I would do when I was growing up is if I could tell a guy was into me more than I was into him or I wasn't into him, mm-hmm. I would put up these really big boundaries and I would actually like not connect with him at all because I didn't want to have to lead him on. I didn't want to be perceived as leading him on and I didn't want to have to say no and reject him. Yes. And I was talking with a guy friend a couple years ago and he said, 
really bluntly how unfair that was because how many of these men, and I'm just using a very gender dynamic here because it just doesn't show up for me with women. How many of these men would have loved to have connected with me in whatever way I was available? And I didn't Mm. even give them the chance because I assumed that they would be a no to being, I mean, and there's there's actually like a seed of real deep wounding there for myself, right? Mm -hmm. There's this assumption that if I didn't want to have something sexual romantic with them, they couldn't possibly just want to be friends with me. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't possibly just want to be cuddle buddies with me. Mm. And so looking at that own assumption that I was making and then looking at how I wasn't even giving these people the agency to decide for themselves if they wanted to interact with me in the ways that were available. Wow. So there's so much, yeah, there's so much permission in, in a spectrum of interaction and relationship that isn't black or white friend or not friend or romantic situation. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Or even just like when, if you have those epic flirt, flirting fails, ooh, say that three times fast, <laughs> epic flirting fails, right? Um, to not necessarily throw the baby out with the bathwater and to mm-hmm. assume that nothing, no form of connection is available for you there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so there's got to be a level of self-trust in that you know, that you are able to stop and hold the boundary and not wishy-wash and not, you know, self-sacrifice. So there's, I see so many layers in the story that you just shared. And I think so many women can relate to you as they feel like they're the gatekeepers and they're, they have to fend off, you know, all the hungry men. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I think part of that too is if you're gonna if you're gonna play with these friendships in this way, asserting your boundaries um, is really important. And then if somebody isn't able to uphold, respect your boundaries, um, then I think that it's clear that they don't have the capacity to have that kind of relationship with you, and you need to assert stronger boundaries and and pull back a little bit, right? So mm-hmm. I think having these intimate friendships isn't for everybody. They don't have the capacity to honor those boundaries. But I think so many more people do than wounded Allie assumed. <laughs> <laughs> I feel you. <laughs> yeah. And so that brings me to a question about couples too, couples and flirting. Cause this is a conversation I've had with both client couples that I've worked with and also uh, friends who are couples. And I always ask them about how the, um, the relationship that they have around flirting and flirtiness in in their relationship, but even externally to other people, you know, do they get triggered when their partner is flirty with somebody else, or how did that? How does that dynamic work? And what would you say to those couples, or what would you say um, to couples in general? Yeah, well, I think that for couples who are flirting with other people. Mm-hmm. Um, it's important to do a couple things. One is to get really curious. What does it mean when you flirt with other people? Mm. Like what, what are you seeking out of that interaction? A lot of us just want that kind of fun expression and interaction. And there's absolutely zero intention to take it anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I think getting really clear on, does it, it, and even maybe taking a step back and asking, do you perceive your behavior as flirty? Because what one person receives as flirty might not be flirty to the other person. I've been mm-hmm. called flirty in interactions when I'm like, that was not flirty. 
<laughs> I do <You're> projecting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but other people see, see me as more inherently flirty than maybe I perceive myself to be. Fair enough. <laughs> um, so I would say just get, have like kind of a more curious conversation around what it means. And then I think that you can also think about, um, and here's a trauma term, titrating into flirty. So if I'm a really flirty person and my partner has a hard time with me being flirty, maybe what we can do is we can explore that in a, in a slow uh, way. So, okay, I'm going to be flirty, but maybe only with people that feel really safe or maybe only um, for short periods of time, or maybe it will be only in certain ways. I won't, I won't flirt with using touch or something mm-hmm. like that. And then my partner can get more comfortable with it and see this is just my way of being and there's no threat to the relationship and I'm loyal and all the things that maybe my partner is worried about. And then there's, okay, maybe there's a little bit more space for a little bit more exploration. Um, mm-hmm. And so thinking that there's actually a way that it could be a collaborative process, both in the curiosity around what flirting means and why it's important, but also around how can we do it in a slow way where it feels safe, but still expressed. We're always kind of calibrating, I think, safety and security with freedom and expression. And so how can we be in this calibration process together? Mm. That's that's a such a fine dance to be in. And I think that would require somebody to really be connected with themselves and connected with their needs and what they, you know, what's coming up for them. And that I, what I've discovered, you know, not only in my own personal work, but people I date and also <laughs> my clients, like sometimes that's, that's a challenge to even recognize that they have a need or that they have something coming up. Mm-hmm. And how would you, is there, is there something that like a, an advice that you would give for somebody to be able to connect with that? to be able to communicate. Yeah. Yeah. I think often when we have an unmet need, especially something that's kind of chronically unmet or a very big need, it's going to show up in our emotional experience. We're going to feel resentful, distant, angry, grumpy, sad, hurt, um, short, irritated, um, competitive, insecure, et cetera. And so what I would say is that if you're noticing that you're having some of these challenging feelings come up, just bring that question, hmm, is there something that I'm needing? Mm. So using these as signals, as signs that something's up. That's right. Because I think that it, it, it can be very helpful to know our needs ahead of time. And Mm -hmm. that's something that requires, as you said, an immense amount of self-awareness and practice. (laughs) It's not easy. Um, And our needs are a moving target, right? Uh So it's an imperfect science, but it's pretty obvious when our needs are getting are unmet because it shows up in the ways that we relate to ourselves and other people. You know, we don't experience irritation for no reason. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's very true. I just got back from a trip in Tulum where I didn't give myself the the spaciousness to transition. So I was bringing the stress and the busyness of being in LA into the jungle life. And I found myself becoming a lot more um, sharp and a lot more more on edge. And my um, 
my partner I was traveling with, he, he reflected that to me and it got me to stop and just reconnect with myself where I wasn't even connected with it until it was brought to the, my reflection. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's, there's, um, for anybody, even myself who has a doctor and has been in the work for so long, you know, there's that human piece of like, it can happen to all of us. And, and so how, setting up these different ways to be able to connect with that, whether it's a safe reflection of a person or a journaling activity, mm-hmm. um, which I, I journal regularly, but I journal extra much when I start dating somebody because I want to stay connected with myself mm-hmm. through that process. Yes. Yes. And I think also part of it is, I I love that it requires that intentional self-exploration and having that mirroring, whether it's from a partner or our friends, um, is, is so, so useful. And I think also another thread is just understanding where you get tripped up around needs. We all have complicated ways that we relate to having needs in the first place. Maybe you believe that there's no point in having needs because nobody's going to meet them anyways. Or maybe you think if you have needs, somebody's going to, um, uh, you're going to push somebody away. Or maybe you think that if you have needs, um, it makes you needy and there's something shameful about that. Mm-hmm. And I think exploring, um, on a more meta level, what your feelings and beliefs are around having needs can be really, really useful because that's often an obstacle or blockage that can show up when we're journaling or meditating or doing some of these other um, self-exploration. And so when you use the word meta, can you explain to our listeners what that means? Yeah, it's um, thinking about something from a bird's eye view. So Mm -hmm. like really popping out your perspective and looking at how some of these things are happening. And it's like becoming the conscious observer and noticing patterns and trends and some of the more core material that we have, right? So when we're thinking about needs and we're thinking about some of our bigger beliefs about how we relate to needs, that's kind of popping out from this bigger perspective. And then as we move into a more um, closer perspective of an individual to individual interaction, we can see how some of these overarching beliefs are influencing our moment-to-moment interactions and ways of thinking and behaving. Oof, wow. I feel like that is full circle to even the flirting, you know, the way that you were describing and moving through flirting dynamics and seeing what's underneath that and what's influencing that as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's why... I'm a really big believer in the work that I do with my clients in combining skills-based learning with some of this deeper exploration around the belief structures that we have mm-hmm. and the emotional experiences that we're exper- that we're having because I don't think that you can just learn the skill and be able to implement it without mm-hmm. also understanding what are some of the things that make it tricky or hard or scary for you. Yeah, yeah, it almost like grounds the skill into like a knowing. Yes. Yeah. And it helps you integrate it more more deeply. Yeah. Well, I love that. And so I'm time checking in. I'm realizing how we just vortex for a really long time. And I'm like, oh my God, but I have so many more questions I want to ask her. Hopefully this is just the beginning of our foreplay together. Yeah. I'm shy now. (laughs) And with that, I want to create some spaciousness for the listener questions as well. So for those of you who've been following me on Instagram at Sex Love Yoga, I take followers' questions and I put them to my guest experts. So we have a couple of questions from 
from the audience. And the first one is, I get so panicked and awkward when someone starts flirting with me. I don't know how to stop that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I me really too. <laughs> um, I, I think so many people have had that experience. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm a really big believer that one of the best ways to create safety is to name the elephant in the room. Mm. And so the elephant in the room in this example is I'm feeling really awkward and uncomfortable. Um, mm. And so like, what if you just said, oh, I really love that you're flirting with me and I'm noticing I'm getting really awkward and I don't want you to stop, but I'm feeling shy. Like, oh that's, God, that's literally what I did with you. I just <laughs> <laughs> it so works. It just diffuses the tension. It lets me know that it's okay to keep flirting with you, even if you're going to continue to be awkward. It's really <laughs> endearing and sweet. Yeah. You know, um, I remember once I was flirting with this woman at a party and, um, you know, it's always a little bit ambiguous. It was a cuddle party. So it was already really affectionate and it's hard mm-hmm. when I'm flirting with women. Cause I don't know if they're straight or if they're clear. And especially in the Bay area, everybody's so, you know, just warm and affectionate. And so yeah. I said something to her, I said, you know, I, I, I do this thing when I flirt with women where I get really close to asking them out and then I get shy mm-hmm. and I back away and I don't do that. And I don't want to do that with you. And, and it totally worked and we dated and it was really hot and super fun. And, um, and yeah, it's just like, that's the elephant in the room. I couldn't get myself to actually ask her out. I knew knew that there was still that obstacle for me, Yeah, but I did have access to at least naming the obstacle. I love that. Wow. That's really, really great. And it humanizes you as well. Totally. To where we can connect with that. Oh, good. Okay. Question number two, how can I kindly tell a dude that I'm not interested when he starts flirting with me? Um, I think this is where you celebrate their desire. So mm-hmm. um, I'm not available and I so appreciate the courage it takes to initiate or to approach, or I really appreciate your desire um, and I'm not available. Mm-hmm. Right? And so it's like both are true, right? You could celebrate their courage and their desire and honor that you're not available. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. And then I can also hear some people who are, who are wondering, yeah, but that, okay, that comes out very well in your mouth, but that doesn't come out well in my mouth. It comes out weird. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's true. And I think that the thing is, is that these things are going to be a little bit awkward and uncomfortable. And I think some acceptance of that is also really important. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And I think the meta of that, you know, uh, that we tend to have this belief that we can't be direct or that being direct, directly communicating is mean or harsh or, and that's not the case. It actually allows everybody to get what they want and relax. And that's right. And what I really like about saying, uh, I really appreciate, I'm really flattered by your desire and I'm not available. Mm-hmm. Um, is that you don't have to explain why you're not available. You don't have to mm-hmm. lie and say you have a boyfriend if you don't. You don't have to go into some big diatribe about why it's not them, it's you. Mm-hmm. You know, you just get to like be short and sweet, which is actually sometimes really compassionate too. Yeah, I had a girlfriend give tell me this one time. She said with people that she would meet for on Bumble that afterward, you know, they would follow up and be like, Hey, I'd love to meet you again. And she would say, um, yeah, I had so much fun meeting with you. And I felt the energy between us was more friendly. And I loved that because it was just, it was direct, but it was also naming what her experience was without leading on, without being vague, but also loving and holding that person. Yeah. Nothing about value or worth. 
just their totally. experience. And if I got that, I would certainly be disappointed, but I wouldn't feel hurt. And I think mm-hmm. that that's, there's something really kind about that. Yeah. Yeah. Which we can use more kindness. Kindness is cool. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just like, you know, it's important empathy building, I think for straight women to realize how vulnerable it is to be in the initiator pursuer mm-hmm. role and how much rejection you experience. And I think that it's just helpful to celebrate the effort, even if you're not available. I just, I can't emphasize that enough. I think it's really <laughs> compassionate. Yes. Empathy. Empathy is such a, such a critical skill that we need, we all need to learn. <laughs> we need to learn this more. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for hopping on here and sharing your golden wisdom. This is you know, very insightful. How can people find more about you? Where can they connect with you? How can they dive in deeper? Yeah. Um, well, I work as both a coach and an educator. So if you go to turnon.love, you can see my full range of offerings. I work with individuals and couples, both monogamous and non-monogamous. Um, and I have a wide variety of workshops about intimacy, both emotional and sexual. And I have a new 10-week course called Sexual and Emotional Intimacy Skills. It's online starting in January. It's actually not new. I've been teaching it at Stanford for a, a couple of academic years, and I'm really excited to be offering it to the public. And we're going to be going over all the skills that I think folks need to have healthy emotional, physical, and sexual intimacy. And so if you want to have like the class that you wish you got to have in college mm. to set you up for having healthy relationships, um, I would say that that's a great place to start. Mm, Love it. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. This was just such a pleasure talking with you and geeking out and playing and flirting and all the things. (laughs) And if you are looking for more juicy, good podcasts about sex, my friend Alexa Martinez is the host of That Sex Chick podcast, where she talks to you about how sex can be edgy, playful, and fulfilling beyond your wildest dreams. How fun. (laughs) Go check it out. Lovers, thank you again for tuning in. If you enjoyed the show, hit subscribe and head over to eatplaysex.com to connect with me and grab my sexy guides. Because my goal here is to get you to eat, play, and sex better. So you can improve your sex life, which will improve every aspect of your life. Until next time, keep it sexy.